Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I am excited beyond measure to be sharing a message with you, a message of hope. Amidst this, the pandemic, the global pandemic of Corona, COVID-19, people are looking down. People are, have lost their path in life in many cases. And this morning, I wish to bring you, as part of uh, the membership of Anchor Church, a special message, a unique message a message to challenge you, a message to take you out of your COVID-19 space, a message to challenge your neurophysiological processes, your veritable brain, to think differently on a very exciting topic, which uh, Pastor Adrian and Lee asked me to address today. And that extremely interesting topic is this. Is there a divorce, a complete divorce, between the worlds of Scripture on the one hand and the world of astronomy on the other hand? To many academic minds, it seems like an irreparable rupture. It seems like the two worlds can never meet. On the one hand, you have people who might go to Anchor Church and hear Pastor Adrian preach. And then on the other hand, you've got professors of applied maths and astronomy like myself. The question is, is it possible for a creative scientist to believe in God? Is it possible? in the year 2020, for a creative scientist to have faith, to have faith in the creator of this cosmos. Now, very interesting, the answer is yes. But to carefully set the scene, I'd like you to travel with me a couple years ago to when I was invited to be a guest astronomer at the Australian National University in Canberra. And we found ourselves of a day close to Sydney, in the middle of the Hamadullahs, as it were. Those of you who understand of the concept know what I mean. In the middle of nowhere, tiny little village. I adore books. I adore old books. I adore new books. And so I said to my friend, let's just go and visit and see, is there a little bookstore in this village? And the answer came back in the affirmative, yes. So we went to the little bookstore. I entered the bookstore. There were dozens of books lining the shelves from east to west, as it were. But my eye fell upon one book in particular, called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. The God Delusion. And I realized that the lie was out there. The lie that God does not exist 
that God is a delusion was out there big time. The books of Richard Dawkins lined the shelves. And so I became determined in my spirit. God gripped my spirit. And I became determined to write a book to counteract the dominance of atheism in science today. Yes, the veritable dominance of atheism in science today. Richard Dawkins takes us and makes us believe that the God whom I pray to is a delusion, that he doesn't exist. And so I had a unique challenge as a professor, and that was to try and marry the two worlds. The one world being the world of astronomy, and the other world being the book of nature, the world of uh, nature, his written word. I spent about 10 years conducting detailed research into a book which has now come out, the cover which you can see on your screen, called God and Galileo. Do feel free to visit my webpage, which is www.davidblock.co.za to order your copy of God and Galileo. But it was an incredibly exciting time for me because if there's one person who got this right, that it is possible for a creative scientist to believe in God, it was Galileo Galilei. Galileo Galilei is known as the father of science. A greater accolade you cannot get. The father of modern science, the father of astronomy. But Galileo realized that what he saw through his telescopes when he directed his telescopes heavenward could be married to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and not any one thing that was made was made without him. And so Galileo was one of those who notioned the two-book concept, the concept of two books. You see, I'm standing here beside a waterfall, beautiful sky above my head. Galileo would call this space that I'm speaking to you at the book of nature. It's glorious. The book of nature contains studies of plants and animals and trees and mountains and much besides, including the sky. And, of course, the book of Scripture we're all familiar with. And so we, in the message I'm about to bring you, especially to you at Anchor Church this morning, the message I want to bring you is a message that is gripping my heart, and it's this. What methodologies did Galileo use to unpack the notion of the two books? the book of scripture and the book of nature. There are many surprises in store. And as you watch the feed as I'm busy preaching, I don't want to divulge too many secrets. But it's just such a joy and honor and a privilege to be asked by Adrian to be part of your inner circle. Because it's a lifelong dream I've had, as it were. Something God put into my spirit right over here. 
the wonder of being a Christian and yet understanding the world of black holes and relativity and relativistic astrophysics and much besides. So join me on a very special journey this morning. It's a journey which took Professor Freeman and myself, my co-author, to many interesting places. We flew to the Vatican secret archives. Note what I said, the Vatican secret archives, where they've got all the original trial documents of Galileo Galilei, for Galileo was held up for heresy because he claimed that the earth was not the center of the universe, but that the earth orbited the sun. And a lot of that story unfolds in what you're about to watch. But we went to the Vatican secret archives. I personally held the handwritten book by, Gala by Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus, in my hand. That was in Poland. So we flew to Rome. We flew to Florence. We flew to uh, Poland. Many different institutes to bring you something which I believe is riveting and unique for Anchor Church this morning. And so join us in a journey of hope, a journey of exploration. Digest carefully so what I'm about to say and play it back several times to digest the full message. But come away from this message produced for Anchor Church this morning with conviction, with conviction, may you be able to say, as Job did, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and on the latter day shall stand on the earth. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Not asking if you heard about this. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that your Redeemer, the creator of heavens and earth, exists? He surely does. Watch this space. Thank you. My presentation today is entitled God and Galileo. Refocusing on God and science. The presentation you are about to hear and experience is based on our book entitled God and Galileo published by Crossway in Chicago. Writing the book involved traveling to some of the most amazing places I could ever imagine, such as the Vatican secret archives, perhaps made famous by its depiction in the 2009 film based upon Dan Brown's Angels and Demons, the archive has always had an aura of mystery, conspiracy, and black legend attached to its name. The Vatican secret archive spans some 80 kilometers or 50 miles of bookshelves. And here you can see my co-author, Professor Kenneth Freeman, fellow of the Royal Society, and myself examining handwritten documents, handwritten documents by Galileo Galilei. 
And here, right in front of you, is one of those documents which I personally held and examined in these two hands. I was also privileged, God opened the door miraculously so, for me to study and hold in my hands the handwritten manuscript, not the first published book, but the handwritten manuscript of Nicholas Copernicus's masterpiece on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. And so allow me to introduce you today to two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Let's start off with the book of nature. The book of nature would include astronomy with the planets, the stars, our Milky Way galaxy, as well as galaxies beyond the Milky Way. How intriguing to speak of the cosmos as a book with pages. A co the cosmos as a book with pages. Awesome. The Milky Way galaxy, part of the veritable book of nature, which Galileo Galilei was privileged to study. Or the Rosette Nebula, photographed here, one of my own personal photographs, secured in Chile in the Atacama Desert, part of the glorious, wondrous, and majestic book of nature. Spiral galaxies outside of our Milky Way galaxy, too, would form part of the ever-unfolding book with its pages. The book, the veritable book of nature. The telescopes which Galileo used were very modest. You could carry them in your hands. The magnification was typically around only 20 times. The focal length under a meter, around 980 millimeters. You could carry them by hand. And at the crux of the story today in Garden Galileo is the planet Jupiter seen on your screens with four of its moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Pertaining to the Great Red Spot, winds as high as 400 miles an hour or 644 kilometers per hour have been brewing on Jupiter's gaseous surface and upper atmosphere, rather, for at least 150 years. So when you look at the Great Red Spot, do realize it's not just some quiescent piece or sector on the globe of Jupiter, but they're very high winds, as high as 400 miles per hour brewing in Jupiter's upper atmosphere. Previously, the Great Red Spot was estimated to be about three Earths wide. It's very red in color, as you can see, which is produced by the interaction of cosmic rays from our sun with ammonium hydrosulfide. There we see the Great Red Spot in all its grandeur and in all its splendor. But who was Galileo Galilei? He was born on the 15th of February, 1564, and he died on the 8th of January, 
in the year 1642. He's known as the father of modern observation astronomy. He's known as the father of modern physics. He's known as the father of science. And so Galileo speaks of two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And is there a great divorce between the book of nature and the book of scripture? Are they irrevocably and forever separated in cosmic space and in cosmic time? Or is there synergy between the book of nature and the book of scripture? That is the central theme in our book, God and Galileo, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Now, in God and Galileo, our book, we argue that God reveals himself to humanity in two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Now, Galileo suggested, it was Galileo who suggested that both books express eternal truths and that both books are compatible with one another because they have the same author. God speaks the same truths in two complementary ways, argued Galileo. Now, the question at stake was the following. Is the earth stationary? Does the sun and all other heavenly bodies rotate or move around the earth. The Pope and the Church of Rome said, yes, the earth is stationary, and that all heavenly bodies move around the earth, which astronomers call the geocentric uh, worldview. You have two worldviews, two models, the heliocentric universe, which is sun-centered, heliocentric, sun-centered, with the planets going around the sun, and the geocentric universe, which is earth-centered, with all heavenly bodies, including the sun, going about the earth in the geocentric universe. The question before us today is, upon which framework was our solar system created? Heliocentric, sun-centered, or geocentric, earth-centered? Here we see Galileo Galilei holding one of his spyglasses or telescopes in his hands. One individual uses his telescopes to stand up for truth. And his sword, if you like, not a military sword, but a telescope or telescopes so modest in nature. Galileo Galilei turned his telescopes or spyglasses upward and he beheld something very interesting. He saw, Galileo saw, that there were four moons orbiting the planet Jupiter, not the Earth. That was revolutionary because Galileo could see objects going around Jupiter and not the Earth. That was revolutionary. He discovered four moons orbiting Jupiter and not the earth. He called these the Medicia Sidera, or the Medician stars. The landmark in the birth of modern astronomy was the publication of his immortal book, the Siderius Nuncius, or translated the Sidereal Messenger. 
And as you can see in the middle there, the Medicia Sidera, the Medician Stars, published in Venice in the year 1610. And so Galileo Galilei's telescopic observations favored a heliocentric world wherein the Earth moves around the sun. But at that time, this was heresy of the gravest sort because Galileo was challenging the authority of Pope Urban VIII and of his cardinals. Heresy was possibly one of the greatest, is not the, if not the gravest sin that could befall an individual in that epoch. And so in the year 1633, Galileo was put on trial for suspicion of heresy, for ideas expressed in his book, The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. Galileo was found vehemently suspect of heresy, and he was ordered to recant his ideas, and those were the documents we held in the Vatican secret archives. Found vehemently suspect of heresy, and so placed by the Inquisition under house arrest. Galileo, for speaking the truth, is placed under house arrest until his death in 1642. His books were banned. His books were banned and further publications, of course, for, for, forbidden. In our book, we make mention of a document dated December 30, 1632, at a meeting of the Holy Office in Rome. And I quote, this is from the, that meeting, he, Galileo, should be transported, imprisoned, and in chains. Quote, unquote. He, Galileo, should be transported, imprisoned, and in chains. Shocking. Such was the wrath of the Inquisition at the time. And so Galileo was a suspected heretic, sentenced to house arrest. He was regarded as being more poisonous than Luther himself. Galileo wrote, and I quote, My book is more harmful to the Holy Church than the writings of Luther and Calvin, quote, unquote. My book is more harmful to the Holy Church than the writings of Luther and of Calvin, wrote and penned Galileo. And so, while one of the most famous trials in the history of science had ended, the battle for the soul of the world, the battle for the soul of the world had now begun in earnest. Galileo's sentence, as I've already alluded to, that of house arrest, that of house arrest until his death. His sentence was signed by seven cardinals. It is almost impossible to believe that an astronomer would spend his final years here for proclaiming the truth. 
And so, Professor Kenneth Freeman and I concentrated on a special letter, a very unique letter which Galileo read, which Galileo wrote, rather, a 400-year-old letter which teaches us about faith and science. Why did he write this letter? Well, prior to his trial in Rome, Galileo could sense the impending doom, heresy, and with great prudence, he wrote a letter much earlier in 1615 to address the harmony between the book of nature and the book of Scripture. His letter of 1615 was addressed to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany, who lived in the years 1565 to 1637. The Grand Duchess of Tuscany was the granddaughter of Catherine de' Medici, the Queen of France. In 1605, the Grand Duchess had invited Galileo Galilei to tutor her son, Cosimo II de' Medici. You say, what Ken Freeman and I argue in Garden Galileo is that nobody reads Scripture literally word for word, listen to me carefully now, without a contextual framework. For example, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But of course, Jesus is not a wooden door. Jesus is not a wooden door. He is the door. He says, I am the door. But he means much more than a wooden door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But we should not interpret John, uh, the verse in John 10, I am the door, by me if any man enter in, he shall be saved, as being representative of a physical wooden door. Got to read the Bible very carefully. In fact, in his letter to the Grand Duchess, Galileo quotes Baronius. I'll read the Latin, and then I'll translate that into English. Spiritus sanctu mentem fuis nos docere cumodo ad culum iarto, non cumodo culum gradiarto. Translated, and I love this, it was the Holy Spirit's intent to teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go, meaning the Bible's not a scientific textbook. I repeat the quote by Baronius. It was the Holy Spirit's intent to teach us how one goes to heaven. Spot on. Not how the heavens go. And so the Galileo affair had placed the Church of Rome in disgrace. And there was an apology from the Pope Pope John Paul II, in 1992, 350 years later, it took 350 years for an apology to come forth. The Pope John Paul II writes, thus the new science, with its methods and freedoms of research which they implied, obliged theologians to examine their own criteria of scriptural interpretation. Most of them, writes, Pope John Paul II did not know how to do so. It's a shocking admission. Most of the theologians, says the late Pope John Paul II, did not know 
how to interpret the Bible. And so if you look at the summer residence of the Pope today, you'll see that it has observatories. Very strange. Why would the summer residence of the Pope boast observatories? Well, in part, the Church of Rome had to save face. I think of Pope Leo the 13th in 1891. After all, the father of science, the father of modern science, the father of modern astronomy, Galileo Galilei, had been buried in an unmarked grave. You see, and listen to me well, theologians at the time of Galileo were the bearers of all truths. The shoe is now on the other foot. Some high-profile scientists are now, apparently so, bearers of all truths. Stephen Hawking is perhaps well known to everyone hearing my voice today. He was undoubtedly one of the greatest cosmologists of our time, and his triumph over disability was truly astonishing. He visited South Africa in 2008 when I interviewed him. Here you can see part of that glorious little interview, Stephen Hawking and myself touching one another, listening, as it were, one to another. But Stephen Hawking is perhaps best known, at least in public domain, for in domains for writing a book called A Brief History of Time. Oh, it was a bestseller. I remember that uh, it was a bestseller selling translated into 35 languages by 2001. But what were Stephen Hawking's frames of reference? Stephen Hawking dared to write the sentence, what place then for a creator? That is on page 141 of A Brief History of Time. You see, Hawking's frame of reference was terribly interesting because Stephen Hawking abandoned Scripture as a source of truth about the world. Hawking, you may not know this, but we expose this in our book, Hawking was a leading light for scientism. What is scientism? Scientism is atheism masquerading under the mantle of science. Scientism is atheism masquerading under the mantle of science. It has a deadly agenda, which you may never know. Stephen Hawking wrote a book called The Grand Design, but embedded in the pages of The Grand Design was that, yes, the universe might appear to be finely tuned and created by a creator, but, argued Stephen Hawking, we live in a multiverse. Think of bubbles. You've got zillions of bubbles, zillions of other universes, as it were. And Stephen would say, fear not, one of them is finely tuned, just happens by chance to be so, but there are zillions of other universes, apparently so, in the multiverse. Why was Stephen so keen to propagate multiverses? Because Stephen was determined to expunge God 
from his thinking. I say it again, and I know this to be true. Stephen was determined to expunge God from his thinking. And so Stephen was a leading light for scientism, as is Professor Richard Dawkins, very famed professor, author of a book called The God Delusion. But the God Delusion, and the author in particular, Richard Dawkins, once said these words. Never forget when Richard Dawkins spoke these words. He said, and I quote, Life is explained. Darwin explains life. No serious scientist doubts that. Quote, unquote. Now, those are three blanket statements of utter ignorance. The origin of life is unknown. I've spoken to professors in this area who completely concur with me that the actual origin of the first cell and how life actually develops is not explained. But be that as it may, Dawkins tells us life is explained. Darwin explains life. He says no serious scientist would doubt that. Well, in our book, we challenge such viewpoints. To Richard Dawkins, I would say, ne sutor supra crepidum, in Latin, which the English equivalent is, a blind man should not judge of colors. Many of my viewers are in London or thereabouts, and the buses in London screaming forth with slogans, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. That is the deadly agenda, not of science, but of scientism. To inject atheism into science and to say there is no God. Such is its deadly agenda. And so as we argue in God and Galileo, we see two cathedrals before us. We see two cathedrals before us. The traditional cathedral in which the scriptures are expounded, and a new cathedral, and behold, a new cathedral of scientism, wherein science is the bearer of all truth, and many churches overseas are empty. In our book, we distinguish between the truth of nature and the nature of truth. The truth of nature includes chemistry, physics, astronomy, geology. In other words, it focuses on the physical or the scientific realm, whereas the nature of truth is much more expansive. The nature of truth includes God's revelation of himself to us, not only to the clergy, but to us. God's revelation of himself to us is the work of his grace, and that is part of the nature of truth. God's revelation to me, David Block, born in a little mining town in Krugersdorp, as you heard in my personal testimony. And so... Professor Kenneth Freeman and I argue that you need binocular vision to study the nature of truth, but also then to perceive the truth of nature. 
You see, in the times of Galileo Galilei, the Bible was essentially in Latin. And very few people of the lay fraternity understood Latin. As you can see in your screen, on your screens here, the year 1526 was a very special one for it marked the translation of the New Testament into English by the martyr, William Tyndale, who was born in the year about 1494 and who was martyred, strangled to death on the 6th of October, 1536. Tyndale is the person to whom our book is dedicated Tyndale is known as the man who gave God an English voice. Isn't that beautiful? Tyndale is remembered as the man who gave God an English voice. There are many popular phrases which we use today in Scripture. The powers that be, my brother's keeper, the salt of the earth, filthy lucre, and it came to pass, fight. Fight the good fight, or let there be light. They are all from William Tyndale. And of course, are readily understood by everyone who speaks English. In fact, 83% of the New Testament and around 76% of the Old Testament in the King James Version is in fact from the martyr William Tyndale. And we salute Tyndale today for being that torchbearer of truth, the man who gave God, the man who gave God an English voice. You see, at the time, there was such ignorance. I think of a survey we mention in our book conducted amongst 311 members of the clergy of John Hooper, John Hooper was a fellow student with Tyndale at Oxford. Listen to this. Nine priests did not know that there were ten commandments. Thirty-three had no clue where they were in the Bible. Most of them suggested that the ten commandments were to be found in the New Testament. Ten priests could not recite the Lord's Prayer. See, everything was in Latin. How could they grip and grasp the truth if everything was in Latin. 30 did not know Jesus had said the Lord's Prayer in the first place. Astonishing times, times of great ignorance. And it was into those very times that Galileo Galilei had to speak forth truth. He had to speak forth truth. No wonder his fate was that of house arrest. No wonder he was found vehemently suspect of heresy. You see, as we argue in God and Galileo, there's the invisible world of God's Spirit, the wind. There's the invisible world of God's Spirit, the wind. And then there's the material world, the trees, the universe with its stars and with its galaxies. To quote our Lord Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 8, and I quote, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, 
but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, quote, unquote. That's John 3 and verse 8. You see, some may take the view that the trees move the wind. In other words, this, they allow science and reason to shape the perspective of God. They allow science and reason to shape the perspective of God. In our new book, Garden Galileo, Ken Freeman and I argue otherwise, that the wind moves the trees. I think of the author G.K. Chesterton, and he sums this up so perfectly. And he writes, the great human dogma then is that the wind moves the trees. The great human heresy is that the trees move the wind. And that is so true today. The great human heresy is that the trees apparently move the wind. Are some, we argue, not blind to his spirit, to his revelation, to his set of revelationary truths. As I bring this presentation up to a conclusion, you look on your screens and you see a solar prominence, a flame on the sun, and that solar prominence is around 40 earth diameters in extent. One flame on the sun is around 40 earth diameters. We take 40 earths just to cover the spatial extent of one solar prominence, one large solar prominence, one prominence or flame on the sun. But think for a moment, beloved, of a solar eclipse. Now, the configuration is as follows. During a solar eclipse, the moon comes between the earth and the sun. And what happens is the moon obscures the face of the sun as you can see on your screen. You see, a heart of stone can totally eclipse God. A heart of stone can totally eclipse God. I think of the Arctic, and I think of the Antarctic. Here on your screens, you see an icebreaker in the Antarctic. And what's so incredible about an icebreaker is that nothing is too hard for an icebreaker to break through frozen ice. Nothing is too difficult for an icebreaker to work its way through. Your heart might be frozen, totally frozen as you're hearing my voice today. You might be cold, cold to the core. The warmth and the love of God might not be pouring upon you. That weight of glory that C.S. Lewis wrote about, the weight of glory may not be your portion today because perhaps you have a frozen heart. A stone has come between you and the sun, and the sun is eclipsed. How is it with your soul today? Is it warm and tender to the eternal voice of God? Or is it cold? Or is it frozen in time? 
Listen to what God says to us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36 and verse 26. I'm reading from the New King James Version. And God says here, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Allow me to repeat that verse. It's very important as I bring this message to a conclusion. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, to conclude, there is the invisible world of God's Spirit. There really is. I sense His Spirit on a daily basis. The Lord, the Lord Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have a very deep personal relationship with my Creator as I share in my personal testimony. I know that 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 my Redeemer lives. Not only does He live, but He forever lives to make intercession for a mere mortal sinner like me, David Block. He forever lives to make intercession for the saints. And so there's the invisible world of God's Spirit, the wind. But then there's the material universe, the universe Galileo Galilei adored, the universe in which you live, move, and have your being. You see, Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes. We can hear the sound thereof, but we can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. My prayer today is this, that God might give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. My prayer today is that God might infuse you with a spirit of love. My prayer today is that God might infuse you and infuse your being with a sense of His majesty, grace, peace, power, love, and joy. Allow me, please, to end off this presentation in a very short prayer. Oh, Father, as this presentation goes forth globally, my prayer, Father, is that you might minister to the broken in heart. My prayer, Father God, is that we might just come to you today and say to you, Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, Lord, create in me, O oh Father God, create in me, O oh Father God, a new heart, a heart of flesh. O oh Lord, forgive all my sins in Jesus' name. O oh Father, 
Forgive all my sins by the blood of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Father, I pray by the power and by the Spirit of the living God that people hearing my voice might experience something, Father God, very strange, that frozen hearts of stone might become warm hearts of flesh. For I ask this, Father God, in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. I thank you, warmly so, for your attention.